Hello and welcome to the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zach Elwood. This is a podcast about understanding human behavior. You can learn more about this podcast at readingpokertells.video. You can follow me on Twitter at apokerplayer. In this episode, recorded July 13th, 2021, I talked to Carrie Callahan. That's Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y. Carrie is a family therapist who writes about gender dysphoria. You can find her writing on medium.com. Carrie herself has suffered from gender dysphoria. She had previously identified as a man and had started the transition process, including taking testosterone, before deciding to detransition. She was featured in an article in The Atlantic about people who have detransitioned. And if you want a quick summary of her story, there's a very interesting 10-minute video The Atlantic did about her. You can find it by searching for Carrie Callahan Atlantic Video, or go to my podcast blog at readingpokertells.video, and I'll have that and other related resources. So Carrie and I will talk about some gender identity and transgender topics. We won't talk about all of them, of course. Our focus will mostly be around the philosophy of gender identity theory and how the theory itself may impact how people think about themselves. And we'll also talk about how much it makes sense to attempt to educate people about concerns and risks when they're thinking about transitioning, especially younger people. Along the way, we'll question and criticize some of the common ideas that many trans activists and liberal people have around these topics. To some people, pushing back on some of these commonly held beliefs is tantamount to being a bigot, or at the very least, to not being respectful or helpful. But hopefully you'll see as the interview progresses that the things we are talking about are not actually that controversial, and that talking about these things may actually be much more respectful and caring than avoiding these topics and acting as if there's nothing to talk about. To give you just one example of what I mean, there are many parents of young gender dysphoric children who want to talk about these topics, who want to know what the right thing is to do, and want to have these tough conversations to help decide, how do I best help my child? But these parents have a hard time finding people they can have such discussions with, including in the medical community, because the standard approach seems to be mostly to avoid these serious conversations. The common approach seems to be to uncritically accept people's ideas about themselves and what's best for them and to fast-track people to getting hormones and surgery. So at the very least, even if you disagree with some of the things Carrie or I say, hopefully you'll see that we believe talking about these things is caring and is helpful. One criticism some people might have about this talk is, why did you interview a detransitioned person about these issues and not, say, a happily transitioned person? Doesn't that mean you're in some way disrespectful and anti-trans? I've seen that criticism elsewhere about some other articles and interviews. I did actually consider interviewing a transgender person, but I had a few concerns there. The main one being that they would perceive my attempt to have some tough conversations in this area as bullying, that they would perhaps try to portray me as anti-trans before the interview even started. I'm sure I could have found someone who would have made for a great talk who'd be willing to talk about these things, but those were my anxieties. And I knew it might take me a while to find the right person if I took that approach. And other reasons I asked Carrie were that, one, she's actually experienced a lot of these topics herself, and two, when I read her writing, I could see she cared about the topic, that she was respectful of gender dysphoric and trans people, and supported their autonomy to make their own decisions. While she did detransition, she knows there are many happily transgender people who have transitioned, and her work does not take away from that. 
If you're interested in these topics, I highly recommend reading her pieces on Medium. Her work seems so obviously helpful and well-meaning. It's a bit mind-boggling to me that people would read her work and think that she's anti-trans or perceive her as being malicious. She simply lives some of these things and wants to use her experience to help other people who may be going through similar things and who may have similar experiences. And I also say that my desire to do this talk isn't only related to the transgender issue. I think the often angry and hysterical us versus them dynamics around this topic are representative of a lot of conversations about hot button topics these days. Those topics where we've sorted ourselves into us and them, where many of us take the stance that anyone who doesn't completely align with, quote, our side is the enemy, is to be feared. Trying to have nuanced, reasonable discussions about some of these topics seems increasingly impossible, even dangerous. Many of us are afraid to talk about the topics, to criticize, quote, our side, and this means that more extreme and unreasonable voices tend to have more and more influence. So a big part of me wanting to tackle such a tough topic isn't even about the topic itself. It's about the meta-topic of how we talk about tough topics, about our angry us-versus-them dynamics. My decision to have this talk is to maybe help foster the idea that we can have discussions and push back on ideas on our own side, and maybe that's the best thing we could be doing. I've spent a good amount of time researching political polarization and writing about it and interviewing experts on the subject for this podcast. And also, I've spent some time researching and writing about how social media plays into these dynamics. So if the topic of political polarization interests you and how that's related to this topic, stick around after the interview and I'll talk more about that and what we can maybe do about it. Before I play that interview, maybe an important caveat. Obviously, I'm far from an expert about these topics, just as I'm not that knowledgeable about all the topics I interview people about for this podcast. If I say something wrong or awkwardly, that's because I'm pretty much an amateur in these areas. I'm just a person trying to learn about people in the world. Okay, here's the interview with Carrie Callahan. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I thought an interesting place to start this would be talking about my own anxiety about even talking about this subject, because despite having nothing but the best of intentions on my side, and despite my belief that I'm going to be saying nothing actually controversial or offensive, you know, there's, there's still this anxiety in me. And I thought maybe it'd be interesting to analyze my own fears a bit and see if they capture why these things are hard to talk about. So I'll, I'll try that right now. Love so it. one, I'm afraid of people perceiving what I'm saying as unhelpful or hurtful to them. Mm-hmm. And it hurts to have people perceive that even if you believe that that is not true, that that's not what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then second, I'm aware that some people might attack me for things I say, call me a a bigot or an anti-trans person for talking about these issues. And even if I believe that I'm trying to have a helpful discussion and I'm not being a bigot or hateful or anything, it's not a pleasant feeling to be attacked and that Mm -hmm. can have real life repercussions. And I'm curious, do you think that's a pretty good summary of the fears involved in trying to talk about these issues and why most most people just avoid talking about these topics, even if they feel there are things to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. I think that my own like emotional journey talking about these issues, I've had to really accept how scary I am to people and how scary what I'm trying to discuss is. You kind of have to respect it. You know, you kind of have to get to a place where you say like, okay, so there's reasons for that fear. Mm -hmm. And 
that doesn't mean that you get less scary and it doesn't mean that you get more understood or less judged. Um, but I think it has helped me accept being misunderstood and helped me accept like, you know, no matter what effort I kind of make to make the information and the messages as safe as they can be, um, the attacks and the misunderstanding is just kind of inevitable. So it helps. I feel like that headspace helps me keep doing it. <laughs> right. It seems like when, you know, with these dynamics of being attacked online, you know, for whatever the, the topic, it seems like the two branches you could go down are either getting angry in response. And that's a pretty common uh, thing to see these days. And I think that explains a lot of people's really unreasonable behavior online. And then the other branch path would be, empathy and understanding for why are these people angry at me and, you know, accepting that even if you don't agree with them, you know, respecting that anger and not letting it make you angry. And, and it sounds like you're taking the much more mature approach of, mm, uh, I've of, taken of both. empathy. And, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And maybe on a one-on-one -on -one -on -one case, cause it's, I think it's okay yeah. to get angry in like a one-on-one -on -one situation versus like, I'm going to hate this entire group of people or, or, you know, which seems to be the case in so many of these kind of hot button conversations, like people get attacked online and then they're like, Oh, you know, F these people. Now I'm against them completely or something, you know? But yeah, I mean, there are still reasons to uh, have <laughs> debate and get angry. And I don't want to imply that that is a bad thing too. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's been really good for me actually is that um, I've had, I've gotten multiple messages from people who have told me like, I used to watch your YouTube videos like five or six years ago. And I totally was like, I'm totally different from this woman. And she's really messed up from trauma or whatever. And this has nothing to do with me. And then, then they reach out to me now and they're like, oh, actually you mm. were saying good stuff. So I've had encounters from people who misunderstood what I was putting out there and then came to understand it. Mm. So that helps a lot. Like everyone really is on a journey. So yeah, that was one thing I was really curious about is because the perception online and the internet is such a distorted view of things, you know, like a few people, a few angry people can make it seem like there is a lot of angry people. Yeah. I was curious to ask you, you must get a lot of appreciation almost behind the scenes, maybe in a, in a, in a lot of cases. Yes. And, I'm, and I'm curious if, would you say you get just as much or more appreciation as you get ang anger? Is that, is that a fair question? Definitely through email, I get more appreciation. The people who get angry at me aren't angry enough to write me personal emails. Whereas the people who are appreciative are appreciative enough to write the email. So that's awesome. Mm -hmm. I feel like mostly the hate comes not even in people like tweeting at me, but kind of in how people will talk about me or organizations I've been a part of in articles. So it's not like they're coming directly at me being like, mm -hmm. you're a transphobe. It's more like they're discussing me as a transphobe, which is still just to say, like, very frustrating. Like it feels I feel powerless when it happens. That would be when I feel angry when like. Right. The distortions. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And the Internet has become I mean, it's such a hall of mirrors where somebody says something somewhere it's like a game of telephone, you know, it's, it's taken yes. out of context so quickly. And I, I think that's the, that's the dynamic we're, we're dealing with. I mean, 
to take a small analogy, my, my wife uh, got in an altercation with a, a restaurant person on, on, uh, online the other day. And she, he basically was lying about her, said completely untrue things. And it really bugged her. And I was oh, like, Oh man, That's you know, I, I, and I'm, I'm just reminding her like the internet is just <laughs> a bunch of distortions. I mean, there's people purposefully lying. There's people misinterpreting things. There's people, you know, playing, basically playing a game of telephone where they're just repeating what they saw elsewhere in wrong ways. And yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, I'm sure you've thought about these things a lot because those are the kind of things that make you realize that a lot of the, the hate that you get is, is distorted. It doesn't, it comes from people without the full story. Yeah. Just angry at that moment and want to lash out. Yeah. yeah. Scared and angry. <laughs> still, I wish that fact checking was more of a thing, but still. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I think we're, uh, I don't, yeah, <laughs> that's, that seems like a cat who's, um, uh, out of the bag or yeah. yeah Pandora's box. Um, but something you said that really struck me in the Atlantic uh, feature of, of your story, the complexity of the truth is inconvenient to both yeah. sides. And I think that's a really, that that really spoke to me, not just on this issue, but on so many issues where we've become so polarized and it's really hard to have a nuanced uh, debate about things because everyone wants to force things to, to one side or the other. So I, I really like that, that quote. Yeah, I still absolutely believe that. Like, um, you know, really, especially in the American context, American, the American healthcare system is so complex. And even if you're talking about differences between states, differences between insurance companies, like the specifics of a person's situation matters a lot. So when talking about detransition or talking about kind of like the low quality of trans healthcare that people have encountered, gets simplified into being anti-transition, that really bugs me. And actually it's funny, this year in my personal life, that simplification has kind of popped its head up where people have assumed that I'm like against a certain person transitioning. And that's never where I'm coming from. Like I, mm -hmm. I want every person who experiences gender dysphoria to get the highest quality of healthcare they can get. Um, and I think it's really worth it to talk about what's going on when that doesn't happen. Because I, as someone who experiences gender dysphoria, I think that we're very valuable, right? Um, so to have that become that I'm somehow against someone's autonomous choice to make right. themselves feel better and have a fulfilling life, it just feels really weirdly off to me. That's what's frustrating to me about your story it just seems you know from reading your writing your your heart is in such a an obviously good place to me i mean uh, obviously people can detransition and make mistakes and the, those people exist and to act like that is not a thing i mean somebody somebody has to talk about that and you know to, to act like people shouldn't talk about that is just kind of wild to me yeah <laughs> it's, it's wild you know sometimes people will say um, well, it's way more common for people to detransition and then um, for a short amount of time and then go back to transition. And that does happen quite a bit because medical transition is really tough. Like, and also just building a life around that is really tough, like jobs and apartments mm -hmm. and discrimination is very real. But I've never understood that argument because if someone's doing a temporary detransition, that is a person who needs lots of support, just mm -hmm. like the person who is detransitioning in a much more permanent way, like 
both populations need care that is like pretty open-minded to what challenges they might be facing and what kind of support they need, you know? Well, yeah. And I think, I mean, it's clear that even if the amount of people that can be argued about, even if it's a very small amount of people who detransition, there's still a population that exists and theoretically with totally you know, a very large population. So to act as if that's not a population to be served or, you know, on the other side to act as if there aren't things to think about before transitioning, which is the, which is the other thing you write about, you know, potential concerns, you know, like one great example that comes to mind is you talking about not you know, not smoking a lot of weed when you're thinking about uh, yes. transition because marijuana is a disassociative drug. I mean, that these kinds of things are just fantastic advice, like that come from a very well-meaning place and that people could think that that was not <laughs> coming from a good place is just kind of mind-boggling to me. Right. It's coming from a well-meaning and experienced place. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think I do understand why medical transition is such a hard project to pull off. I do understand why people feel like keeping it really positive and keeping it supportive is important. It's just, it's such a tricky project that you want to slow people down and make sure they're thinking about all the details. And I found that for myself, my head was in a very like fantasy prone place, a very, um, yeah, a fantasy prone place. And you don't you you don't want to be making these plans from that stance. You want to be dealing in specifics and you want to be making very specific detailed plans for how things are going to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think I'm going to attempt to summarize what I see as the the problem in that area of of where where a lot of the anger comes about. And I think it's because many liberals seem to think that the way we show support for trans people is by not questioning anything that the answer, the the kind loving answer is to essentially say, don't question any of this. Don't set up any obstacles at all. The people who want to transition don't consider any debate that there might be other issues that might be at play. Don't be concerned about young children who want to transition, give them whatever they need at any age. Don't ask any questions. Yes. And, uh, and when I tended to talk to about this with one liberal acquaintance, one of her responses was basically, you know, this is serious business. People are dying. You should be more respectful. And I think that's a common attitude for a lot of people that an attempt to talk about this stuff is itself the problem that it's doing harm to gender dysphoric and trans people. But I think many people's stances and probably your stance would be, we're actually doing a big disservice to people, especially to younger people by not having serious talks about these subjects of not offering some cautions and some learnings and some debates along the way. Am I getting the crux of that problem right? Absolutely. And this is actually something where I get a little bit angry um, because I, I, so I've had very similar conversations with people. And I had one in particular with someone whose relative was transitioning. And this was like an area that I knew well, right? So I knew the doctors kind of in the geographic area. And I asked this lady like, well, what, what surgeon are they going to? And she was like, well, that's none of my business. Right. And that's very easy. That's a very easy stance to take. Like Mm -hmm. if your stance is I'm a good person because I refuse to engage with my loved ones about the specifics of their healthcare 
wow, that really lets you off the hook. That's a really easy way to be a good person. But some doctors are scumbags. <laughs> some doctors are not good at their jobs. And your relative deserves a doctor who knows what they're doing. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't think, I mean, a question like that, like that's not about someone's identity. That's not about whether someone ha has the right to identify as a gender that will make their life work for them. That's about like the care that they're receiving. And these surgeries and these hormonal treatments are not um, easy stuff. So when I get attacked in situations like that, that's a hard one for me not to be angry about because I, I do feel like that hands-off approach can become kind of selfish. Like mm -hmm. you want to be a good person so bad you're not willing to steer your relative towards thinking about like the quality of their doctors. Like now buy it. Yeah, it seems like a, a least resistance path that is masquerading as love, as as empathy. And I think it's it's kind of like these I, I see that in other areas too, where it's like we won't question things and that is our form of uh, showing respect. I thought of an analogy for this that was thinking about young children having kids, like teenagers yes. having kids. And many young people say, I want to be a mother. I want to rush out and have kids. And is it loving to say, there's nothing to think about. Go ahead. That is your choice. And that is how you want to uh, form your life. There's, there's nothing to think about. Is that supportive? Is that loving? Is it helpful to avoid tough conversations? Exactly. And like, I can absolutely see why it's tempting to be really hands-off and really unilaterally supportive, especially when someone's doing something that is risky, like having kids or like changing their body. But you have to ask yourself, like, yeah, am I being selfish here? Like, am I being really self-centered in this unilateral support that this person will eat up and love, but mm -hmm. maybe will not serve them? Yeah, and maybe a, a good segue here because... As you know, I want to talk about some of the gender identity theory stuff. And maybe a good segue too is theoretically by not questioning anything at all, including like the the theories and the ideas that are in the environment, you know, there, there's chances that people, more people uh, affected by the environment will believe they have gender dysphoria when they don't actually, because the the ideas are just so pervasive. And that's obviously a controversial topic that I want to touch on more later, but maybe a good way to start this is what is the the gender identity theory or theories as they're commonly thought of? Yeah. So, you know, I always think of this particular anecdote in my life, which is um, I worked at a community mental health agency for a while. And this community mental health agency had a parenting manual for everybody because a lot of what they did was parenting education and it was a very popular one it's called um nurturing parenting and in this parenting book just like a little kind of soft cover thing of worksheets and illustrations about things like how to swaddle your child how to feed your kid healthy stuff how to set a schedule for your kid they said that girls and boys have different brains and one of the proofs of this are trans people, right? So what that means is that at least in Northern Ohio for low-income families, they are being given information from trusted sources saying that the female brain and the male brain are distinctly different. And that is why girls are more relational focused and boys are more focused on 
trucks and guns. Um, and so, I mean, I don't want to simplify gender theory too much, but that's kind of what it comes down to, the idea that um, these stereotypes that we have about female and male people are rooted in a reality about our brain structure. You know, research does not tend to bear this out, but the existence of trans people for some reason gets folded into this overarching theory that all these things that we could pin on socialization and social pressures, or even on just the physical differences between our bodies and who's stronger, that is wiped away and it just gets pinned on these mysterious structures in our brains. A small but maybe important update here. A trans person who listened to this episode pointed out to me that many people don't believe gender identity has anything to do with the brain, that it's more about one's own feelings, that one's traits don't match up with society's expectations, that it's more about one's own view of oneself. This person told me that therefore our talk was way off the mark, that that's not how they or many people view gender identity at all. And they're right. There are different conceptions of what gender identity represents, and many people do think it's a much more subjective thing that one decides for oneself. And clearly, some trans people do seem to be more on the intrinsic brain-related side of things and believing that they are, in some intrinsic way, miscast and that their brains were born to the wrong body. So there are clearly different conceptions of gender identity theory. But I don't think that in any way detracts from the ideas that Carrie and I discuss here. For either conception of gender identity, it still gets down to an idea that some traits are or should be more associated with masculine or feminine. And both conceptions are entirely subjective because even if you believe it's something brain-related, we have no proof for that generally or for individuals specifically. Both of these conceptions of gender identity are about deciding something like, these traits of mine don't fit most people's conception of what the traits of someone with my biological sex should be. So I just wanted to mention this in case it was an objection for anyone listening. And I actually had edited out some stuff where Carrie talked about how people's conception of gender identity was a bit more complex than what she had said, but she was trying to boil down the essence of it and how it's perceived by many people. I'm probably saying what people listening know, but the, the idea is that if you're, say, a man, you might identify as a, as a female gender because you feel in feminine ways, you act in feminine ways, and you might associate more uh, with the feminine side of the, the spectrum is, is, the, is the basic idea of uh, the gist of it. Is that accurate to say of, yeah, of people, if, for people who have gender dysphoria? That if you were in the world in a male body, but you were very empathetic, very gentle, very interested in nurturing, maybe more interested in relationships and stories than you are in you know, destroying or building things. Um, or if you're interested in being pretty, flamboyant, getting desired visually, all of these things, since we associate them with female stereotypes, might make a male person think that they are, they have a different kind of brain than other male people. And to state probably the obvious for most people, but the, this is not at all related to, in, in this theory, this is not at all related to um, who you prefer sexually for uh, your sexual attraction, in other words. Yeah, it's, right. it's just about the gender identity that you associate with interiorly. And yeah, I right. just wanted to make sure that that's clear. Uh, so in other words, uh, gender identity theory is a theory of psychology. It's an idea of what our 
how our minds, our brains might operate. And you could liken it to other theories of psychology. It, it is just an idea of how things work. So I wanted to say that because I think this is where I think there's a lot of misunderstanding too, where a lot of the anger comes from that me attempting to talk about or, or debate about the gender identity theory is disrespectful to gender dysphoric or trans people. When to me, I see no connection between a debate and intellectual debate about that theory and issues of respect for trans people. In other words, disagreeing with this intellectual theory of the mind is in no way related to you being for or against trans rights. Uh, you could be a trans person and disagree with the theory, you know, and uh, to make an, an analogy, you don't need to believe in a specific psychological theory to be gay. And presumably you also wouldn't need to believe in a specific psychological theory to have a strong urge to transition to another sex. So right. assuming you agree with me, maybe you can talk about, you know, is my take right that people equate the debate or criticism of the gender identity theory with uh, criticism or you know, disrespect of uh, gender dysphoric or trans people? Is that an accurate read of the situation? I do think it's accurate. And I think it's the reality of what beliefs are in the trans population about gender is so much more complex. You know, there are so many trans people, especially intellectuals, frankly, who do challenge the brain sex theory. I call it brain mm. sex. Mm. But it's kind of like the overarching narrative that organizations like GLAD or HRC push is this brain sex theory. And I think what's going on is that there's this belief that it needs to be super, super simple for like the straight norming population to accept it. Mm. When in actuality, trans intellectuals don't accept it because <laughs> um, it is so simplistic and also like it breaks down so quickly. I think it's interesting. I think it's kind of a theory that is driven by a sense of political expedience. And I, I think most thinking, thoughtful people in the trans community actually don't buy into it. Mm, interesting. I did not, did not know that. That's kind of my take. I mean, that, that really is my viewpoint. So I could be wrong about that. And also, it's a little strange to say that someone's rights to change their body or live as a certain gender um, needs to be predicated on them having some kind of difference in their brain, you know, like that's right. not actually respectful. Right. So, you know, I, I, I totally, because I, that, that's what bugs me about some of the, you know, the gay um, rights talk is, is acting as if, Oh, they're, they're born that way. So it's okay. It's like, no, that's not why it's okay. It's okay. Because they're adults who can do what they want. It doesn't matter how it came about, you know, it's exactly. like whether it's, whether there's environmental factors or whatever it is, it doesn't matter to me and it shouldn't matter to other people, you know, cause we don't really know at the end of the day. So to act as if it requires a physical explanation or, or, or a specific explanation like that is, is disrespectful to me. Yeah, yeah that, I would agree. I understand why the born that way narrative got so popular mm -hmm. and I, I don't think it's necessary if we really and truly respect people's rights to build the life they want. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the uh, the criticisms of the of the gender identity theory. And to be completely transparent, as I've told you, I 
the logic behind it strikes me as, as very circular, um, very self-referential in terms of how it, on one hand, wants to transcend traditional gender stereotypes and roles, but very much relies on those gender stereotypes and roles. So I'm curious if maybe you could give a rundown or, or I could keep going about the uh, criticisms, but maybe you have a better concise way to put it. Well, I'll just, I'll just kind of go through my criticisms of it. I think the criticisms of it are like so numerous <laughs> that it would be hard to even get them all because they're so easy to pick this apart, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, I mean, one, kind of all the processes that get left out of the picture if we pin gender stereotypes on brain sex. So that means that we're never going to talk about socialization we're never going to talk about um, just material reality in terms of strength and aggression, right? We're never going to talk about, um, gosh, whose bodies are implicated when reproduction happens and how that changes things. Like, what does it mean when half the people are going to at some point be eight months pregnant as I am and how that changes what you can do and who you're dependent on. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot that gets like left out of the picture, like switching kind of levels of discourse. I think it's really interesting how the brain as an organ is like elevated to this very definitional spot. So we talk about kind of the importance of gender in the brain. It's funny cause there's no other organ where, like it's that important, right? Like mm-hmm. we can kind of talk about differences that might exist in like men and women's livers. Uh, they're not <laughs> they're not considered like definitional of what it means to be a man or a woman. I guess like the uterus and the penis and stuff like that is definitional. But um, I think it's really interesting how our ideas about the brain and the split between the brain and the body play into this discussion. I mean, my main, I I have to say that seeing that nurturing parenting book and seeing that low-income families were being told like, hey, your girls are going to be more interested in caring for their siblings (laughs) than your boys because of their brains really upset me because one of- Low expectations. Yeah. One of the unfair parts about female socialization is that girls often are parentified in their families and get turned into little mothers way too young in ways that are not good for them or their siblings. So having that be kind of normalized is like, well, that's stemming from your girl's brain. It's like, no, it's not stemming from her brain. It's stemming from your work schedule. It's stemming from like you being overwhelmed and looking for a babysitter. So that's my main criticism is that I don't, I think there are so many circumstances where like clearly justifying different treatment for boys and girls through pinning it on the brain, it's like not healthy for boys and girls. Yeah, I think the, I mean, to me, it just seems like the, and maybe I'm talking about the the simplistic version of this, of the theory that that you said, but it seems like the the reasoning behind it is is so circular in the sense that it, we're saying we can all transcend and and be more than these restrictive, you know, stereotypes of male or female, but then it's also saying that those stereotypes exist inside of you, that they are, that they are real things. Like me and many other people I've talked to about this cannot relate to the idea that we have a gender identity. And it, and it seems weird to me that right. 
and I'm sure, you know, many people have written, as you say, many people have written about various criticisms, but it just seems weird to me that, you know, uh, why are we accepting this theory that to my mind has no real intellectual uh, backing to it other than that it's popular when so many people can't even relate to it. People who are open to the, to the idea can't relate to it. I mean, I, I think uh, if I looked inside of myself for something like that, I just wouldn't find it because at the end of the day, I just feel like I'm responding to the environment. I have various biological things that are probably mysterious that are happening. I don't know about, I, I feel like if I, if I wanted to behave femininely, I would, I would do that. Um, and, and I don't, and, and that's the thing. I don't even believe that there is a thing necessarily called feminine other than that, that is associated with, uh, certain things that are associated with, with females. Like, I, I think we should be trying to transcend those things and not put these boxes inside of us, but I, I'm sure I'm not sure. explaining this as, as, uh, eloquently as I could, but no, these are I some mean, of the problems. I mean, you to the choir. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I really hate actually the words feminine and masculine mm-hmm. just, mm-hmm. just because the meaning is so fluid for each. Right. Yeah. It's like, as soon um, as I say it, I, I find fault with it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, so often when people use the word feminine, they mean passive mm-hmm. and okay. But then like, what, how does that connect to being female exactly? Mm-hmm. I think all these words are really like kind of mythic and big, but you know, you come back to reality and like someone has to wipe babies' butts and hold people's butts. And, like, and that's work that has to get done, you know? And how does, doesn't it matter that like how that work has gotten assigned has mostly been based on someone's role in reproduction? I think it does matter. I think that all that millennia of how we divide up labor matters a lot. Yeah. And I think there's, there's so many things underneath the surface that I wouldn't even pretend to understand. Like when I look at the the factors in my life that dictate my behavior, I'm, a, I'm very much at a loss to, to understand what they are really. Like, I believe lots of things are fluid about me, including my, you know, my behavior, my, my sexuality, lots of things are, are fairly fluid. And I think, I think the thing that bugs me about these ideas is that it's trying to make concrete a thing that to me just seems so amorphous and shouldn't be put into categories. And um, I'll probably, I'll, I'll make an analogy here. And to me, it's like if some people came out with an, a theory of internal racial identity that went something like, hey, race doesn't matter at all. We're all more complex than these restrictive racial stereotypes. We transcend these stereotypes, but then they follow that up with, but if you think you have good rhythm, your internal racial identity is black. You know, it's, it's just, to me, it, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's enforcing these society enforced stereotypes that to me, I think we should be trying to move away from them. I feel like I'm rambling now, but. Um, yeah. Sure and I think like what's tempting is this idea that we need to ignore how the ideas don't fit together to be compassionate. And yeah, I just, that's not real compassion. If compassion isn't balanced with respect, then it feels not right to me. Um, and I, I think having been trans identified myself, you know, you, you know when people are being compassionate to you and they don't respect you. And that experience is not fun. So, mm-hmm. and certainly like it is not that people who are trans are not good at thinking. They're very good at thinking. So um, I don't, I'm not sure that these super simplistic ideas that don't actually fit together 
are respectful mm-hmm. to anyone. I'm curious when you were going through your um, gender dysphoria uh, experience and the trans experience, did the gender identity identity theory play a role in your perception of, of that and or or motivation yes. to to change yourself? Yes. So, and just to say, like, I still. I still experience gender dysphoria, not all the time. My, it kind of comes and goes depending on what's going on in my life. Um, but so when I was growing up, like I'm a pretty opinionated person. I can be a pretty sometimes like angry person. Um, I can be a pretty risk-taking person and an impulsive person. I have ADHD. And so there were a lot of things about how my brain worked that did not make sense to me when I looked at the other girls. and. I've realized now that I'm older that I was actually getting pretty overt messages from the adults in my life that something was not right with me. Mm. Um, That idea that there was something distinct about my brain that made me trans and different was very tempting to me. Uh, I didn't transition as a kid. I transitioned as a full adult. I was 30. Like I was adult. I went to a therapist And I was already kind of ensconced in a trans scene. I was dating a a trans person already. When I went to the therapist, I knew what I wanted to do already. But like what therapists will tell a lot of gender dysphoric people, especially female people, is just try testosterone. And if it feels good, that'll be confirmation that it's what your brain needs. So the problem with that is testosterone almost always feels great. Like it in general makes people feel more energetic. It in general is an antidepressant. So I got on testosterone and I felt amazing. I loved it. And so it's funny because if for me, that experience shifted me into a much more hardcore kind of brain sex believer, Mm. I went on testosterone and it felt so good. And I was like, oh my gosh, I actually really do have a male brain. This is why this feels so good. I was missing something I really needed. Mm. But in actuality, I was just having a ball on testosterone. I was just, I really liked being aggressive and horny and I loved it. It's a good drug. So, yeah. And uh, my detransition happened in a pretty messy way. It was not that I decided I wasn't trans and then stopped testosterone. I had to stop testosterone. And then about a year and a half later, I started thinking hard about whether this belief that I had a different kind of brain was actually good for me because it wasn't good for me. I, my life really took a nosedive and, you know, just for me, the more I cultivate the perspective that I have actually a lot in common with a lot of different people that I'm not particularly distinct or special, that grounds me. And that's good for me. (laughs) I can, I can go way overboard with this idea that I am different and need different treatment and different special things to make my life work. In in general, I need very common, normal things to be happy and grounded. So yeah, so I I think that these ideas are really complicated, I guess. And Mm -hmm. and I think when you're really building an adult life, like one where you have to pay rent and have a career and feel good about yourself and date people and have long-term relationships, that stew is hard for everybody. So we should be open-minded about how different factors play into that. 
I was curious, might be too personal a question, but when you said you were getting signals from your family at an early age, was your family fairly conservative or by chance? You no, know, no, actually. So my family is very progressive, kind of almost Marxist, frankly. <laughs> like my, I come from like Rust Belt, pro-union, like community organizing people, but you can be that kind of liberal and be pretty darn sexist. Right. That's what I was. Yeah. I was wondering if I had this question about if people from more, not necessarily politically conservative, but maybe more traditional family and environment might be more likely to, you know, assign their feelings to gender dysphoria because they're used to being put in these constrict, more constrictive stereotypes. Whereas like the way I grew up where, where I basically could have acted any way I want. And my, I don't think my parents would have made me feel uncomfortable, at, at least in terms of like so-called feminine or, or masculine behavior. But That's yeah, so cool. I was curious if that might play a, play a role. Yeah. My family has really longstanding patterns of moms kind of beating up on their daughters and like a lot of martyrdom being really respected. Like we're Catholic. So like there's like this Catholic martyrdom lady thing that they expect out of everybody. So everyone becomes a nurse. Um, and, and that's, yeah, like looking back, like, well, who would want to, if you could do that or you could be like your brother, mm, yeah. then why wouldn't right. you want to be like your brother? Yeah, I kind of see some of that where it's like, well, if the if I'm faced with these alternatives, if you're only giving me these binary options, and and actually, yeah, my my wife, if we were talking about this, she was a a big tomboy when she was young, and she mm. had some real gender dysphoric experiences, and really questioned because she thought female was this, and she was not that, so therefore, you know, it was like a binary kind of thing. Whereas, yeah. like, I think I think maybe in some environments, you wouldn't be thinking in terms of, oh, I have to fit into these binaries. Totally. Family environment can make a huge, huge difference on how you think about yourself, no doubt. Do you think, uh, can a theory itself, like uh, gender identity theory, do you think the theory itself can play a role in making more people believe that they're gender dysphoric? Well, not to harp on this, but certainly if your mom and dad are getting told that there are boy brains and girl brains, then that to me would make your mom or your dad more likely to give you messages about what kind of brain you have. Mm. Um, and that's from my experience with my mom and dad. Um, but I, I think that parents and other adults in a kid's life, you know, we're constantly giving feedback to our kids about their acceptability and how they fit in. And, you know, you want kids to all grow up in an environment where what they're being told is like, let's just let you be your unique self and figure out how you fit into this world and what a joy to see you get to do that. But that's not the reality of this world and parenting normally. Um, so I think parental anxiety about kids' behavior and kids' likes and dislikes can create a lot of negative messages for kids about their difference. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think a, a, another important point here that I think is another key factor in some of the angry interactions around this issue is that, you know, as we've been doing, we've been talking about the role of one's environment in these things. And for a lot of people talking about that or talking about psychological issues 
not necessarily problems, but just psychological aspects. Talking about the environment or psychological aspects to these things is framed in terms of like, oh, you're saying, you know, trans people are crazy. You're, you're saying we're, we're not in our right minds that we're influenced by others or whatever. But that's, you know, not at all the case when I'm talking about it, because I think, you know, in my in my mind, everybody is influenced by the environment. We're all influenced by the things around us. And, and to, to talk about those things is not at all offensive. Like we were talking about, you know, gay people, like to me, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter to me whether there's a biological component, uh, environmental component, or a mix of them or whatever for why people are gay. That really doesn't matter to me because I think we're all to some extent affected by our environment, just as I'm affected by my environment for, you know, everything I do pretty much and and how I've been formed. And I, I think there's a, there's a big disconnect there too, where people take those kinds of debates and, and try to say, you know, interpret them in the worst possible way when that, you know, for, I think that's not the case when we're talking about it. Yeah. And I think that that is not the case for other conditions that are listed in the DSM. So when I was going to grad school to be a therapist, we were taught to conceptualize clients in this biopsychosocial sphere, right? So you want to be thinking about what's happening in the patient's body on a bio biology level, on a um, like interpersonal psych- psychology level, and on a social level. People are coming to you for a reason. They want to make changes in their life. And then after you've conceptualized them in these different intersecting spheres, then you can work with all of those spheres, how you move them forward to what they want, right? So if they're depressed, mm-hmm. stuff is happening in their bodies, stuff is happening in their families and happened in their past with the families of origin. And then they're dealing with social stresses too, like unemployment or a breakup, you know, all the stuff that bums people out. So for other conditions in the DSM, it's kind of accepted that it's always complicated what created that condition. You know, even something like ADHD, what causes ADHD is actually like pretty complex and we don't really have a handle on it. Mm -hmm. And people will tell you that it's brain chemistry. People will tell you it's maternal stress. Um, Some people have suggested there's like a connection with lead poisoning. And that's kind of accepted that that's okay, that we don't currently totally understand what will create ADHD in a person. And just because we don't totally understand it doesn't mean that each person dealing with that condition like can't find a path forward for dealing with it. And that might include medication. It might really not include medication and it might include just lifestyle change or just self-acceptance. So gender dysphoria is interesting because making the discussion complicated in terms of the biopsychosocial concepts is considered offensive. But it's not offensive for a depressed person or a person with ADHD or a person with bipolar. So that's strange. Yeah. And there's just, there's so much questions about so many things we experience. Like we don't even, you know, uh, there's a great book called My Age of Anxiety by Scott Stossel, Mm. where he who I also interviewed for this podcast, where he talks about the, you know, you could look at, there's just so little we know even about anxiety, you know, it's like there's biological components, there's environmental components, uh, they overlap, they, it's really hard to, you know, it's like to, to pretend that these are not very overlapping and nuanced things is, is missing the, the complexity in in these things. Uh, Oh, and something you said that I wanted to follow up on, you, you know, talking about 
when we have problems, when we have anxieties, when we have uh, struggles, there can be multiple paths forward. And I think that's also kind of a, a root of a disconnect there because, you know, implying that you, for example, like theoretically, there was a path where you were completely happy with transitioning and, you know, in, in some world, some, you know, parallel dimension. And so talking about that or talking about that you had multiple paths available to you and, and that there were multiple factors available here. I think people think by saying that there might be other paths that's disrespectful to totally. trans people. But I think I think what we're really trying to do is acknowledge that there are multiple paths and a lot of times people can be completely happy with multiple paths. It's more like the, you, you want to think about all the factors that could be present and, and think about what you're going through more. Totally. And I think because I am someone who's had the experience, I think about the parallel universes thing <laughs> like kind of a lot. Like my parallel universe trans man self is someone that I think about. And, you know, any number of factors in my life could have been different. And that could have been the life path I took. And I don't think that that would have been necessarily a tragic life path. There are some mm -hmm. times where I think even it would have been in a lot of ways really similar. Like, I'm really happy to be pregnant and to be married and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I think that even if I had continued down that path, those would have been things that I would have sought out. And I think now since I like look in the mirror and I look so pregnant and stuff, I think about what I would look like as a trans guy pregnant. And frankly, I'd probably look pretty similar. Like maybe I'd have a beard and like, obviously I would have gotten a mastectomy, but yeah, it's, it's life is so rarely either or that's usually not how life is. Do you feel like your life experiences have taught you to be more uncertain about what your needs and wants really are? Yeah, I think I understand about myself that, one, I learned that I could be fantasy prone, right? And that's really important to understand about my brain. And then I definitely learned about myself that I can, a lot of what keeps me happy are very like regular basic things like getting enough sleep, like getting enough exercise, like having stable relationships, having enough money, that kind of thing, which is the case for most people. People are much like babies. Like we need schedules, we need security, we need safety. But that can be hard to remember when you're making, kind of fantasizing about your ideal life. So I definitely learned about myself that I can get ideas about what I need to be happy that totally forget about the basics. And that was important for me to learn. Um, I think I also learned a lot about advice and just how useless advice can be. <laughs> um, you know, advice is so much more about the person giving the advice than it is ever about the person being given the advice. It's so much more about the ego of the person telling you what to do than it is usually about the person being told what to do. And I definitely learned through the process that like the people giving you advice are not, they just are in no way invested in your life the way you are and the repercussions for them don't exist, you know? So you, whatever advice you get, you just really have to be super skeptical of it because you are the only one who will live through the consequences of taking that advice or not taking that advice. So it was a very valuable experience. For, for myself, I just, when I, when I try to look inside of myself and, and try to figure out 
aspects of myself or what will make me happy. That is a very difficult thing to do because yeah, a lot of times we, especially when we're younger, we think, oh, this will make me happy. This will make me happy. But when it's actually achieved, it, it seemed, you know, you, you realize that it, it wasn't. So I think with age comes, can come that more uncertainty, which, which I think, you know, a big part of wisdom is, is uncertainty and, and not trusting ourselves really. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think most young people have to have to go through that. And it's so the experience of having regret and the experience of the experience of screwing your life up and then regretting it is actually, as long as it doesn't kill you, really, really valuable. Uh, I kind of went in a tricky thing because I, you know, so much of what I do is give advice. And I also know how useless it is and how much that can be about who I want to be. But I try and remember that, like, that journey of screwing it up is sometimes like the very most valuable thing a person can be doing at that point in their life. Your advice is around uncertainty, really. It's not, that's what you're advocating is, is thinking more about it and not being certain. So in that, in that sense, it's like, I don't see how you can go wrong with, with advocating, thinking more about things. Yeah. Yeah, I do think that more information is way better than less information. And then also you can change your mind then. And if like, definitely when it comes to being totally fully informed about medical interventions and what you can expect to come down the road as far as medical interventions, more information is better than less, always. It might be you get all the information on a medical intervention and you learn all the risks and you're like, this is still the right decision. And good for you then, you know? Maybe to get a, a little too existential and broad here at the end, but I've, I sometimes think it's possible that some of these issues for some people are related to the fact that in the modern world, we have so much more free time and, and more time to examine mm. questions about ourselves and our place in the world that we are more likely to come face to face with this abyss inside of us. And I don't mean abyss in a bad way, but more that we have this interior, this inner world that's very mysterious and undefined to us. And we have the capacity to basically create our own worlds and our own truths. And that knowledge can be very scary and anxiety producing. And I think uh, this kind of existential anxiety might be why some people reach for labels, uh, whether that's traditional roles that they're playing, you know, the, the traditional uh, role stereotypes, or as I see it for, for some people, these internal, also equally stereotyped gender identity labels. And I also see this maybe with some, some of the clinging to labels that some people seem to have about um, autistic or on the autistic spectrum, or I have this thing, uh, whereas I think we, maybe we need to not label ourselves so much. And I think sometimes the, the labeling is, can be restrictive, even if it's, even if it's comforting to, to belong in a, in a, uh, in a category or, or a box, uh, maybe getting too broad there, but absolutely wanted to end maybe on that, that note. No, uh, I mean, it's such a profound need to be understood. And it's also such a kind of unreachable need, you know, because like we can't really ask other people to understand us because we're always changing and fluid and, we always contain all these potentials, but we want so badly to like just make sense to the people around us. Mm -hmm. It's very, <laughs> it's very profound. Well, thanks a lot for talking to me. Uh, appreciate the, the chance to have the conversation. Yeah, thank you. That was an interview with Carrie Callahan. That's C-A-R-E-Y. 
and you can find her writing on Medium. She's doing a series right now called Talking About Talking to Doctors, where she's talking to people about their healthcare experiences in this area. You can also find her on Twitter at Carrie Calls BS. Part of my reason for wanting to do tough talks like this on controversial topics is that I think showing how there can be disagreement and discussion on one's own side helps create empathy for people who believe different things from us on the opposite side of the political aisle. In our increasingly polarized country, people tend to reside so much in homogenous bubbles of thought that we forget or don't notice that there can be many forms of reasonable dissent on many topics. For example, if a conservative were to say, I don't want my child taught about gender identity theory, many liberals would say, oh, that person's a hateful bigot. But hopefully you can see how someone can think that and not be a bigot. If you've listened to this podcast, you'd understand why I myself would not want my child or children in general to be taught gender identity theory. This isn't because I don't respect trans people. This is an intellectual disagreement. I think the theory is just wrong, that there's no validity to it, that there's been no real testing of the idea, that it's no more scientific or real than an idea like Freud's edible complex. And I think the theory itself, by being so incoherent and circular in logic, creates confusion and makes people more likely to consider themselves gender dysphoric. And to be clear, I would want children to be taught that many people have stereotypes about sex and gender, but those are mostly illusory stereotypes. We should all feel free to behave however we want, as long as we're not hurting anyone, wear whatever we want, transcend stereotypes however we want, love whoever we want, and not feel the need for any labels, because those labels are just our human attempts to categorize things we don't understand. And I'd want to teach children to not judge others for how they appear or how they act in these areas, because no matter how you think it comes about, there's obviously a lot of variety in how people present and how they behave. In other words, I'd prefer a theory that didn't attempt to categorize what I see as elusive and mysterious internal states, then instead said something like, these stereotypes about gender-related behavior don't actually matter. It might seem like they matter sometimes because we live in a society with stereotypes, but those are just people's ideas. You shouldn't pay much attention to these labels and categories and should just do what makes you happy. Some people listening might be thinking, that's all well and good for you, a cisgender male to say, who hasn't struggled with this stuff. But actually, I do relate to a lot of this. I've never related to stereotypical male things. In school, the behavior of my male classmates often made me nervous the rambunctious and aggressive ones. I used to get sad and disturbed watching the boys stomp on crickets in the high school gym locker room. Even today, aggressive people in conflict make me quite nervous. Even though I think playing sports can be fun, I've never liked watching sports, never understood what the appeal was. As a kid in elementary school, when many other boys were roughhousing on the playground, me and a couple other friends had an ongoing game where we pretended to be bunny rabbits. In elementary school, I had a physical albeit non-sexual, crush on a male friend. In middle school, I was mostly friends with females. I can easily imagine if I were growing up in today's environment that I might be tempted to think of myself as gender dysphoric. In the same way that my wife, who struggled with some gender dysphoria issues in her childhood, also says that she thinks it's entirely possible that she would have been attracted by these ideas. I suppose some people who believe in the gender identity theory would say that I identify internally as a male because I present it in some stereotypical masculine ways. I suppose people would say that, but the thing is, I don't relate to any of these ideas about gender traits having a place inside of me. 
well, I think that some of my behavior is likely biology caused and some of it is society caused. I don't have any sort of handle on which is which. It's all sort of a black box. I don't feel that there's some internal gender aspect of myself. Put another way, if societal expectations were that I, as a male, should wear a dress and wear some makeup, and maybe be more passive in how I relate to others, these traits that many people associate with females, I'd probably be doing that, not because I relate to it in any internal way, but just because it's the path of least resistance. I simply don't think most of this stuff in any way has much of a bearing on who I am. In short, I think we're talking about complex and impossible to quantify things here. And I don't think our stereotypes of what constitutes, quote, feminine or, quote, masculine mean much at all. There are attempts to place a wide range of diverse behavior into various boxes, and I think this is largely for our own comfort. If you've listened to this podcast much or read some of my writings on social media, you know I think a lot about political polarization and the psychology behind that. And I see the polarized and angry discussion around trans topics as very much analogous to how we talk about so many other hot-button topics these days, from race to police violence to immigration to many other things. The thing I think many people don't understand is that these very us-versus-them polarized dynamics we're dealing with are very common dynamics in large groups. They're common dynamics that many other countries have gone through and are going through. They're common dynamics that have destroyed many other countries before ours. We tend to think that America is unique, that we're fighting about very important issues, that our population is clearly divided about the issues themselves. And of course, the issues can be important. I'm not denying that. But what is much more important in these dynamics is what researchers call effective polarization or emotional polarization. That is, it's less about the issues and more about the animosity between the two groups. That ever-increasing animosity creates more and more pressure for each group to take a unified stance against the other group and not criticize their own group. And as each side becomes increasingly intolerant of internal debate, they grow more extreme in their ideas. This isn't about which side started it. Obviously, we all have our own beliefs about which side is worse, but it's about recognizing how the dynamics work. If you look at other currently polarized countries and those throughout history, the dynamics are the same. The issues are different, but what is the same, what is most important, is their underlying psychological tendency to sort ourselves into two extreme and opposing groups and ramp up those us-versus-them dynamics. It's a very human weakness, probably our main flaw, and there's a good chance it will be the cause of our extinction at some point in the not-too-distant future, especially as our technology, including our weapons, get more powerful. You can see these dynamics playing out for so many hot-button topics these days. Each side becomes increasingly resistant to internal debate. To bring it back to transgender topics, I know there are many well-meaning liberal people who want to talk more about these issues, but simply are afraid to, or don't have the time to do it well, because it takes so much effort to do it well and not say things wrong and make it clear what your intent is. And I think for many of these hot-button issues, many people believe that, well, the other side seems so cohesive and monolithic, and the stakes seem so high right now. Maybe it is best for us to stick together, to not question our side. It's uncomfortable to question things, but maybe it's also best if I don't question things. But from what I've learned in researching polarization, that is the wrong intuition. That is the path of least resistance that leads us to more and more polarization. Instead, a better approach is to continue to attempt to find nuance, to continue to attempt to have debates, to criticize your side when you think they're doing something wrong. 
I could go on for quite a while about the benefits I see of doing that, but a couple quick points. One benefit, questioning your own side helps make your side more reasonable. A big part of how groups grow more extreme is that dissent is increasingly taboo. So by questioning our side, we're helping make it more reasonable, more nuanced, more capable of having conversation. It also results in your side just being more persuasive to people outside the group. The more people outside your group perceive you as avoiding topics and not having reasonable debate, the less persuasive your group is. Another benefit, questioning your own side helps bring down anger from the other side. A big part of how these dynamics play out is that each side is responding to the worst of the other side. For example, Trump supporters take something hateful and unreasonable a liberal says and use that to act as if that's a common stance amongst liberals and that riles up their group. So the more nuanced we attempt to be, the less that dynamic is a factor. Obviously, there will always be people that will attempt to paint the worst people in your group as the norm, but it just helps bring down that dynamic. One of my podcast episodes was an interview of Jamie Settle, who's researched political polarization and did studies of how use of Facebook seemed to amplify polarization. In her opinion, one of the most helpful things we can do is to show how we don't fit into the usual stereotypes of, quote, our group. To break the polarization cycle, one thing we can do is to show how we don't fit the template of the stereotype of our group, and maybe this will inspire others to do the same. But that takes a lot of bravery because we're understandably afraid of being cast out from our own tribe. We're afraid of being tribeless. But maybe if more of us did that, we'd show how others can do that. Show how this isn't weakness, that it doesn't prevent us from being able to fight against things we think are bad, that it in fact may be the most helpful thing we can do. And to be clear, I'm not saying you have to question your side in public on social media, as I actually think social media is a horrible place to have discussions. I'm talking about private conversations in our homes and with friends and family, because that's a big part of how we form our ideas and where polarization grows. And on the topic of social media, you may enjoy a piece I researched and wrote about the role that social media may be playing in amplifying our divides and extreme thinking. My piece is about the inherent effects of internet communication. For example, the fact that writing things down has been shown to make us more stubborn about our ideas. And now with social media, we're all writing our ideas down more than ever before. Things like that. I'm very proud of that work. If you want to check it out, search for Zach Elwood Social Media Polarization, and you'll probably find it. This has been the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zachary Elwood. You can learn more about this podcast at readingpokertales.video. Use the contact form there to send me any ideas and criticisms, especially if you think I'm way off base on something and want to point me to a good resource to help me learn something. You can follow me on Twitter at APokerPlayer. I don't make any money on this podcast, and I spend a good amount of time and money on it. If you'd like to show some support, I started a Patreon at patreon.com slash Zach Elwood. That's Z-A-C-H-E-L-W-O-O-D. There are no real extra benefits to sending me money just if you like the podcast and want to encourage me to work on it. I also have a PayPal. My email for that is info at readingpokertells.com. And I appreciate any reviews or ratings you leave on iTunes or other platforms. Thanks for listening. Music by Small Skies.